we should design curriculum with not with not with kids' interests in mind so much, but with their needs in mind. And we should we should always be thinking about what the, what are the needs of the people in our community and how can we orient what we study and learn such that it is mapping to those needs and to questions that arise from those from those needs. Resilience Conversation, uh, we are so glad that you are here with us today. Um, to, this is Carmen Zeisler, and I'm here with my colleague, Megan Yoder. And we, I'm so excited because we are here with my one of my professors from my certificate program that I'm working on right now, uh, Elijah Hawks. And so he is going to share with us a little bit today. We've got some a few questions to ask him, but we really just want to get to know him better, too. Um, so Megan, you want to start us off? Yeah. So at SDAC, uh, we love to start everything off with a check-in. And so that's where we ask, are you mad, sad, glad, or afraid? And what is that about for you? So we always set the example first. So um, I'll go first. So I have a lot of glad. Um, we had a wonderful Thanksgiving break, had some great time with friends and family and just well-deserved time just hanging out in my pajamas at home, you know? So a lot of glad around that. Um, I have a little bit of afraid because Carmen and I have a really big conference coming up and I just, even though we're checking all the things off of the list, I am so fearful that we're missing something or something's not going to come in time. Um, so I have a lot of afraid around that in my checklists. Um, I don't think I have any mad or sad right now. So yeah, just glad and afraid. <laughs> Who'd like to check in next? Carmen, Elijah? Elijah, you want to check in next? Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Megan and Carmen. It's a delight to be joining you. Mad, sad, glad, or afraid. I certainly have plenty to be thankful for, so I'm glad about that. It's kind of spitting cold rain outside, but I have a wood stove and I have wood and I'm keeping the house warm. I'm working from home today. And so I'm grateful for um, grateful for that. And I'm so glad to be joining the two of you for this conversation. And hopefully it'll go both ways and I can learn even more about Carmen's work and the work you all are doing. And I do feel a little bit sad. I, I, I was reading some correspondence this morning from a, a young teacher with whom I work at the Upper Valley Educators Institute. And um, he enrolled in one of our professional ed courses focused on lesson planning and lesson study. And uh, he's been struggling to complete the assignment, but he's really struggling. And he wrote me a kind of a long note about, about, his, about his school year. He's, I think, a first or second year teacher in a first time um, in, in a new job this year. And it's really, really hard for him. Um, middle school position here in Vermont. And uh, I was telling him that Alas, he's not alone. There are some other middle school teachers in Vermont that I know this year who are really struggling with the work that they have chosen to do and the support that they're feeling is lacking for them in that work. And um, so I'm feeling sad for some of the young teachers that I know and um, even some of them who are choosing to leave their posts or wondering whether they'll come back next year. Um, that said, I have plenty of reasons to feel glad about the educator workforce that I get to work with. There's so much good stuff happening, including in the course that I uh, have the privilege of being in with Carmen. Thanks for the chance to check in. 
Thanks for that check-in. Um, gosh, I am feeling a lot of glad. Um, as we talked about in another podcast with John Whalen, um, I'm a huge soccer fan. And so international soccer, World Cup soccer is the best of the best. And that it's happening at this time when I had time off uh, to be able to just experience it. Um, the highs and the lows, <laughs> the lows as well um, has just been really fun. Um, let's see. I, um, I am getting ready. Actually, I leave early tomorrow morning for a week long trip for work. And, um, so there's a little, there's a lot of glad and there's a little afraid with that as well, just with, um, just checking all the boxes and getting things done that I need to have done, but then also just being present and being ready to present at the conferences. Um, but the cool thing is, is that I get to end my week in New York city for a day. And, um, I'm going to have lunch with one of my former students, uh, who I taught when she was in third grade, uh, and now she's in college in, in NYC. So there's a lot of glad there. So I'm not really feeling any mad or really any sad today. So, um, well, thank you guys all for checking in today. Um, so I wanted to just share with you, I'm, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but I'm doing a, a master certificate program through St. Michael's college, and it is on holistic restorative practices. And it has just been a joy, like just the best, the best year um, I've had. And um, our cohort is small, but mighty. And uh, we've all become very good friends and friends uh, on a personal level and, uh, you know, just as colleagues as well. And uh, so Elijah is teaching the course that I'm in right now. And, um, and so when I was working as we're working on stuff, I'm like, we need, we need Elijah on the podcast. And so I'm just so excited to introduce you guys to Elijah and his work. And Elijah, I'm just going to turn it over to you. Could you just kind of give us like kind of that 60 seconds, 90 second kind of overview of you and how you landed kind of in restorative work and, and what you're doing right now? Yes. Thanks, Carmen. Um, so a quick overview of me. I grew up in um, in small town, Vermont, and went away to college. And then after college, which was in Connecticut, found my way to New York City. In between there, there was a year that I lived abroad in Senegal, which is where I actually first started uh, teaching in uh, fourth and fifth grade classrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, landing in New York City, I I found myself at a small progressive high school for transfer students, kids who had been struggling in some of the mainstream high school settings of different kinds around New York City. And the educators at that school had a commitment to restorative practice, as well as consensus-based decision-making and just making the circle kind of all the time for uh, for conversations and for the exchange of ideas and, and problem solving, whether it was full school faculty meeting or disciplinary interventions, there was a strong value placed on restorative practice at this school called Humanities Prep. And it's still around now. And uh, Humanities Prep actually was the school that we endeavored to replicate when we started the James Baldwin School in in 2005, also in New York City, and also still around today, and also a transfer school serving students who are 
needed a smaller, more community-minded setting as part of their pathway towards graduation. Um, so I landed in the good hands of very capable, um, wonderful humanist educators at that school. And they had been um, learning from folks at the Scarsdale Middle School, um, not far away in Scarsdale, New York, um, a school that had connected with uh, the uh, thinker Lawrence Kohlberg and were centering the, the, the work of discussing moral dilemmas with young people and part of the discussion of moral dilemmas also involved for them the development of something that they called the, the Fairness Committee, which was a, a body for, um, and you know, an often ad hoc assembling of people to come together and try to solve a problem that had arisen in the community and repair harm. So it was a restorative justice structure that those educators then brought to uh, our school at Humanities Prep, and I learned about it there. And um, yeah, I guess that was sort of the beginning of my introduction to restorative practice in schools. Although I also um, was a counselor at a Quaker summer camp here in Vermont, and there is a value placed on the value of every voice and an opportunity for every voice to be heard, at least in principle. That's something that operates throughout the, the camp and in the Quaker traditions. I think there were some elements of restorative practice there that, that seeped into who I was becoming as, a, as an educator. Wow, that's so interesting. So what is your job right now? What are you doing right now? Right. Um, so after six years as principal at the James Baldwin School, I moved back to Vermont um, with my then wife and kids, and we and I became principal in Vermont for the for ten years. Left that position um, just two years ago, so now I'm in my second year as the director of school leadership programs at a small graduate institute called the Upper Valley Educators Institute. It's located just outside of uh, where Dartmouth is located in New Hampshire. And we serve um, schools, school communities in Vermont and New Hampshire. And in addition, I have the good fortune of teaching that the course that you're enrolled in, Carmen, at St. Mike's um, in the fall, in the fall semester. This is my second year doing that as well. So uh, my day job is the director of those leadership programs, and we work with people who are becoming school principals and and uh, school leaders and curriculum directors. So it's an internship heavy learning by doing competency based program for gaining your administrator's license in Vermont, and New Hampshire. Oh, wow. I love that idea that it's the intern internship based um, approach to it, because I think sometimes we just get a lot of head knowledge inside of programs and not the actual doing of things. And that's what I've appreciated about the, the holistic restorative practices cohort as well, is that we're doing things. Yeah. Yeah. Amen to that. Elijah, you briefly mentioned a fairness committee and how they were used to repair harm in the school community. Can you explain that a little bit? What, what, what does that look like? The Fairness Committee, as I as I got to know it, um, I'm not sure what shape it exactly is in now at, at the schools where it was being used. Um, but as I knew it, it was a um, it was a group typically of, of of young people and adults, students and teachers or, or administrators who were coming together to discuss um, an infraction of one of our school's core values. That was the the broad um, framework. Um, so it was a, it was a response to harm um, practice that was grounded in the school's core values, and those values were respect, or our respect for humanity, respect for the intellect, respect for the truth, respect for diversity, and a commitment to peace, a commitment to democracy, a commitment to justice. So the the, the fairness committee typically it, 
Well, anyone is invited to bring anyone else to the fairness committee. And so what that would entail would be telling one of the facilitators of the group that might be the co-director or administrator of the school, or it might be a teacher leader that you'd like to bring someone to the fairness committee to discuss um, the violation of one of the core values. And so the first part of a fairness committee meeting is discussing what the core values are, what they mean, and which core value may have been compromised or tread upon in a particular case. So the first effort that the group needs to make is to come to some kind of shared understanding about what the core values mean to the people in that group, although there are some school-wide definitions, and some understanding of which core value might have been violated in this case. Um, It could be that a student is routinely coming late to school and there have been other efforts made here and there. And then ultimately their, you know, devoted first period teacher, Carmen decides, you know what, I need to broaden the conversation here. I'm going to bring Joey to the fairness committee and we're going to have a conversation about what I think is um, our, our commitment to the intellect and respect for the intellect and how that's being challenged when he's not in class with me for me to understand his intellect and for him to understand mine. So a teacher might bring a student to the fairness committee, discuss the the respect for the intellect as it relates to his or her presence in school. That's just one example. And then the the, the committee effectively is a, is a conference of all the parties who decide what needs to be done to repair or fix um, what's going on. And then people walk away with with commitments as you might in other restorative conferences that that may be familiar to you or to the listeners. Yeah. So Elijah, in your book, um, Woke is Not Enough, uh, School Reform for Leaders with Justice in Mind, you talk about you being um, called to the fairness. Can you share a little bit about that? I I just feel like uh, for a student to feel that they have the voice to be able to do that, I'm just blown away by that. Yeah, that was a, a really significant moment in this in this young person's time at our school. He, he was someone who was probably in his third year with us. Um, I don't know how old he was, maybe 18 at the time. Still a good ways away from, from graduation, at least one more year and a half or so. And, uh, and patterns of disengagement and disrespect and volatility were resurfacing again. And you know, some of his closest relationships were the ones that he was was the most uh, volatile with, you know, his advisor in our advisory setting or the counselor or the social worker, people who had worked closely with him over time were often the people he was pushing away. Um, there was cursing in class, there was all kinds of disruptions. And he was in my office, you know, again, in a very familiar way. I was the principal at the time or the principal co-director. And, um, I just thought if this, you know, if this goes on like this, we are stuck. We're really stuck. I don't know what to do. And I just sort of impulsively said to him, because sometimes I feel like one needs to just like come out of left field and challenge what the young person maybe expects us to be doing. He expects me to wag my finger at him and he expects me to, you know, arrange a a meeting with his guardian. He expects me to do this. He expects me to do that. And he's ready with his response. So I just was like, I'm going to say something that like maybe will surprise him. And I just said, why don't you leave? This is obviously not working for you. We'll find you another path towards graduation. Um, and he was like visibly shocked by that. And um, I was kind of shocked that I said it, um, but I said it and it it definitely sort of like 
shook up the moment for us and opened up some new possibilities eventually. Um, you know, he left school early that day. We connected with his guardian. He was safe. It was okay. He was back the next day and he went to the social worker and said that he wanted to take me, uh, his principal, Elijah, to fairness. And, um, and so, and I said, yes, of course, because that for me was a sense that, okay, this young man actually is committed to the school and he's committed to his own education. Um, and uh, it was the first time I had been taken to fairness by a student, but it was nice to affirm that that was a possibility because we'd always said anyone can bring anyone in the community to a fairness committee meeting. And so that, that meeting started off, like I was saying before, with a discussion of which of our core values, and we had the same core values as the other school I was just discussing, had been violated in his perspective. And he shared some thoughts and I shared some thoughts. And we ultimately came to a common understanding that I think it was my respect for his humanity had been, mm-hmm. I, had, I, had, I had violated that because in me responding emotionally to him in the moment, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't really thinking fully about who he was as a student. And he shared that with me he's, and with us. He said, you know, throughout his life, he's had people tell him that he's not going to graduate, that he ought to drop out, that he ought to leave school. And I was there like confirming some of the worst um, associations that other adults in his life had laid on him. And so that really, that hurt him. And so I was able to hear that from him and, and understand that I really wasn't empathizing with who he was and what he was experiencing at that um, moment. Um, You know, even though I was able to assert over the course of the fairness committee meeting, as were others, that his behavior in the classroom was not okay. So that, that still gets discussed, but you know, my personal relationship with him and how I had hurt him was the point of entry into that conversation about his behavior and in, in, in the classroom, his, his work ethic and what we needed to see from him in terms of engagement in his academics. Wow. Megan could, I mean, I think about our students and our learning centers. I just took a bunch of notes, Carmen. <laughs> I'm going to need you at some point to repeat the respect for truth and elect and all of that for me again. <laughs> I can see that up on my wall. Like I really, yes. can. Um, <clears throat> can you also like, first I want to say like, how amazing is that perspective to be able to be a student in a school? How, how old was that student? I think he must have been 17 or 18 at the time, you know, still maybe a sophomore or junior in, in high school. Okay. Yeah. So to have a student come up to a principal and say, yo, we're going to this meeting because you violated one of our core values that you've got an amazing culture there for a student to feel that they can do that, that they could approach an adult in the building and say, Hey, I'm not okay with what happened yesterday. Let's talk about it. That's a Yeah. I think. I think that's a good observation, Megan, and it relates to some of the, the some of what we've been discussing in our class, Carmen, and which, of course, I, I know the two of you know well in your work in schools, which is that the the universal school-wide sense of belonging is an important foundation for the intensive intervention that is the Fairness Committee or the Restorative Circle that... Um, it's important that that we feel like we're a part of a community and then we care about the harm that happens in that community. If we're not, if he hadn't felt like he was a part of the community and he had allies and supports and that he knew that the community loved him, which is why it hurt him when I said that, um, then he might not have taken advantage of the of the fairness committee intensive response to harm. Um, but but there was there was a sense of belonging that's achieved in other ways throughout the school. Um, that then allows the intensive intervention to be effect an effective tool or resource. 
So what are, what would be some of those things that inside of a school um, they're doing to create, to help foster that sense of belonging? Hmm. Well, I think it has to do with what happens in, mostly it has to do with what happens in the classroom every single day. Um, that's where school culture is really born and nurtured and sustained. Um, and it also has to do with what the adults are doing when they're having, when they're doing their work together. And there, there ought to be parallels there. There ought to be parallels between the adult interactions and the norms of interaction there, how we solve problems together, how we work toward consensus together, how we value different voices and multiple perspectives in our meetings. And that also needs to translate to the classroom in terms of the pedagogy that people are using. Um, and ideally, that kind of uh, a pedagogy is, is combined with a curriculum that also values and sees the needs of the kids and sees the needs of the community that we're in, that the curriculum is reflecting that too, so that one can see oneself reflected in the in the school because the curriculum is not a textbook off the shelf written by someone far away, but it's it's right. a curriculum content that's being designed with like the the like acute questions and needs that we face as people together and as a community. So um so it's through through what we teach, it's through how we teach it, it's through, you know, how we staff the school and whether there are people who, when someone is struggling in the classroom, they can get personalized support outside of the classroom. Um, lots of lots of different ways I think we can create that sense of belonging. Yeah. Um, Elijah, that comment just made me think too about, you know, you're focusing on the adults in the building. Um uh, you know, when I, when I'm working with schools, that's one of the biggest things is like, yes, I'm going to talk to you about a, you know, community circles, but it makes such a bigger impact. If you are also as the adults in the building using this, um, using this restorative practice, um, you know, as a staff, um, uh, gosh, I'm like, that's like one of my biggest things. Like when we're, when we're upset, you know, when we need to, when, when there's conflict happening with the adults in the building, let's not run away from it. Let's mm-hmm. circle up. And I don't think as educators, we're used to that. Um, we're, we're at, at least in Kansas, I'm going to say we're not used to that. Um, I think a lot of times we tend to run in the other direction um, rather than coming together. Megan, would you agree with that? Or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. I can say that I don't know one adult that is okay with conflict, <laughs> but it's something to start normalizing. Like, you know, if, if we don't talk about it, it's not going to get resolved. Everybody's still going to have these feelings that they have about it. And then another thing will happen and it just adds, it stacks up. Right. And then that's where we get these blowups, but coming together, circling around it and having the conversation really ends up not being as scary as what people think. So Elijah, I'm wondering, um, one thing that we've spent some time on in class is about uh, just, a, well, a little bit of time um, on in classes about project-based learning. Um, Kansas has, that's like kind of a big part of Kansas education um, over the last several years. Um, we have a commissioner of education, Dr. Randy Watson, uh, who um, just really has kind of pushed, pushed, pushed everybody (laughs) in a very good way (laughs) uh, to look at um, project-based learning, to look at post-secondary success. I mean, he's got this whole vision um, inside of what we call redesign. Um, And project-based learning comes up all the time. 
And our colleague, Ginger, is kind of a master at it. Um, I used it in my class. Megan used it in her class, like when we were in the classroom. And Megan uses it in the Learning Center, too. I was so blown away by uh, some of the things that you shared around the project-based learning class around restorative practices. Um, Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I was um, a principal at the time, co-principal at Randolph Union in central Vermont, and we had created um, what we called the project-based learning lab. And that was um, a special classroom that we had we had created when some other programs shifted or changed, and we had some we were able to staff it with someone who was also responsible for senior project, a capstone graduation project that the school had been around for a long time. But this person also had the responsibility to support teachers in creating project based learning electives for ninth through twelfth graders, um, and they could touch upon any number of disciplines, and they could. Um, they could be a semester, but they were typically a year-long courses to give them um, a, a lot of time to do the work that 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 is was before them. And the the uh, the intent was that the project-based learning courses are engaging young people in solving problems that need solving in their in their world, um, or pursuing a question that has you know strong strong relevance. Um, so I, um, I've, I've taught the first of like that genre of PBL classes at the school before we had the PBL lab, it was, um, it was, it was a documentary film class where young people were asked to investigate a challenge that adolescents faced in the community and what resources were in the community to help them, um, address those challenges. So a young woman did a, a documentary about teen pregnancy, another person did a documentary about living up on a living on a farm and the challenges that come with that. Um, another person did something about uh, addiction, lots of different topics. Um, and the kids made films and presented them before an authentic audience. So those are all elements of the of the PBL program that we wanted to uh, spread across more teachers expertise. Um, addressing a you know real world challenge, um, doing it in collaboration with community partners, um, and uh, doing it in an inquiry based um, collaborative problem solving way. So, once the lab was up and running, I thought that teaching a course on restorative practice might be a good way to build interest in more restorative practice or restorative justice in the school. And um, so, I drafted a course description, and a, a new a teacher who was new to the school would co co-taught it with me. It can be important for an administrator to have a co-teacher because sometimes you get pulled out of the classroom. Um, and the, um, the course description starts off with the question, do our schools in this state discipline students fairly? Do students with certain identities get suspended more often than others? Does a school suspension have any connection to dropping out? Does dropping out of school have any connection to getting in trouble with the law? And what about our legal system? Do the courts treat people fairly? Does Vermont have too many prisons or not enough prisons? Should people with mental health challenges go to jail if they commit a crime? How should people with opiate addiction be treated when in custody? Those were some of the questions that the course description put out there to draw students into the course. And then once we were there together, um, over the first month or so, they did 
they did their own research projects into the into a question that was of interest to them. And then ultimately, we decided after looking at some school discipline data together as a group and learning more about restorative justice from some um, experts in our region that um, that we wanted to see more restorative practice in the school. And um, and so I, as the principal, was able to give them access to faculty meeting time so that they could make presentations to the faculty. And I was also able to help them have access to, to advisories and other aspects of the school so that they could do focus groups with kids who had gotten in trouble in the past. Um, so it was important that I, that, 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 that I could play those roles as an administrator. And um, ultimately, the, the faculty gave the kids the green light to start some peer mediation um, efforts in the spring semester and even to run some other circles. And again, they knew that I, the faculty knew that I was involved in helping to guide the process in which, which restorative practices the kids might be able to handle and which ones perhaps would not be a good fit for their work. Um, and, uh, and it, you know, kind of took off over the course of the spring semester and the young people felt really good about what they were doing. And then, and then the following year, another teacher took over in my place to be the teacher of that course and, um, and again, there was a new cohort of young people who were interested in the topic and who had some skills for, for facilitating. Um, it was offered again another year later. And that particular group of students was, they had a lot of their own work to do. They were not ready to facilitate peer mediation. <laughs> so that, that class was more self-contained and kind of like doing its own restorative work with their, all these kids were on their own individual journeys. Uh-huh. Um, so it, it was a course that's been around for a while. I'm not sure if it's still being taught there, but it was uh, it was important that it be a class because then there's like, mm-hmm. you know, hours of time in a given week to consider the work and to build the skills. It's it's not something that can be achieved as an after-school mm-hmm. club, um, the depth of expertise and learning that, that one would want. So that was another principle of the project-based learning courses was if there's something awesome happening after school, then we can bring it down into the school day and staff it fully and give it a lot of time and give it space. Let's, let's do that. And we did that with the community service club and like their activities, like expanded massively. We did that with, uh, you know, a foreign language group that was planning a trip abroad. And like all of a sudden they were planning a trip to Nicaragua and with community partners and raising money for grants. And like they had, because they had the time in the school day to do the important work. Um, so I'm rambling a little bit. I should stop. I wrote an essay about the class in a, in a, in a book by edited by Lisa Delpit. If anybody wants to read it, the book's called teaching when the world is on fire. And my essay is called school justice. And it describes the course in a bit more detail. Yeah, we'll be sure. I'll be sure and link your books, your two books that you have, and also that in the show notes as well. Um, I, um, I, I think one of my favorite things um, in your book um, was the 15 ways leaders can start now (laughs) with the work. Um, And so uh, we we do have a lot of administrators that listen to our podcasts, um, administrators, you know, being principals, superintendents, but also we have a lot of teacher leaders too. Um, And so could you maybe just share a couple of ways that you think would be you know, there ever everybody is just working so hard, right? I mean, so 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 hard. Um, could you share maybe a couple of ways that you would be good places where people could have like it's a low low prep strategy, but maybe it's a high impact strategy? Does that make sense? Yep. A stra- could you say more like a strategy to 
Yeah, for yeah, for just in, for restorative work uh, inside of restorative work, um, I think of one of the strategies um, or one of the ideas that you shared in your book was um, normalizing emotions, <laughs> like it's okay, or or just circle up. Yeah. Um, like it doesn't have to be. I think sometimes we think it it has to be this big production or this big thing, but really, it's just it's just coming together and, and asking a check-in question and, and then asking another question. Like that's really, and sometimes the check-in question is enough. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think those are certainly some of the like juiciest, most tasty and nourishing low hanging fruit. Um, How we arrange the furniture. Are we looking at the back of each other's heads or are we sitting in a way that we can see each person's face and hear each person's voice easily? Um, do we begin our meetings with an op- or end our meetings with an opportunity for mindfulness or gratitude or appreciation or even apologies? These are things that can really humanize our meeting and our classroom spaces um, in, in really important ways and um, acknowledge that there are human beings you know, in this space with us with a range of emotions. And if anyone would like to voluntarily share some of that, um, we're here to we're here to hear you. Um, so yeah, some some ways that we that we run our meetings and run our classrooms um, can be low low hanging fruit in that regard. I would also say that as a as a point of departure, um, any school leader can know with a great deal of confidence that the resources to solve our community's problems are already here. Mm-hmm. That. That may sound like it's a matter of faith and not a matter of practicality, but it, but I think it's both. And um, if you are looking to to cultivate classroom discussion as a as a as a way to ensure that that young people's voices are valued and heard, or if you're looking to um, facilitate meetings in a way that ensures that all people are are valued and seen and heard and feel a sense of belonging and contribution, there are already teachers or other people in your school who are doing that work and have those skills. So let's find let's find them and give them opportunities to share their practice. That's an easy point of departure is that knowing that the resources are there, we have someone who's really good with classroom discussion. We have someone who's a really good facilitator. We have someone who knows how to ask questions when emotions are strong or when harm has been done. Who are those people? Who are our resources? And how can we give them additional platforms or invite other people to witness their work? Um, I think that's that's a really important principle for us all to to keep in mind. Um, another thing I guess I would say is uh, I wrote about this in my first book, which is called School for the Age of Upheaval, and it's about adolescence and curriculum and how we can match curriculum with the needs of adolescents, even if adolescents are feeling rage um, or another range of painful emotions. Um, but the principle is that we should design curriculum with not with not with kids' interests in mind so much, but with their needs in mind. And we should we should always be thinking about what the, what are the needs of the people in our community and how can we orient what we study and learn such that it is mapping to those needs and to questions that arise from those from those needs. Um, that's another way that people can feel a sense of of belonging and that the school understands them. And again, that's the foundation that one needs when the harm happens is that you need a sense of, of belonging so that people have something that they want to repair. Yeah. I think too, like um, bring in, bring in students, bringing students to the table because I, you know, just like you talked about with the risk, the PBL class, um, but just the idea that 
I mean, gosh, our students, they have so many ideas and so many things to offer. And I'm talking about as low, I mean, as early as our preschoolers, like we can learn so much from them and more than likely they have, they have the answer as well. Um, and our perspectives change too. I think when we give that voice, um, to students and really, truly listen, listen to what they have to say. It can be so empowering for a student to say something that they have on their mind or an idea that they have. And for the adult to go, oh my gosh, I've never thought of that. That is brilliant. Mm -hmm. You are suddenly giving them a sense of self and worth. And, you know, we all work with kids who come from hard places who probably don't get encouraged every single day. So to see a teacher tell them that they had the big idea can be really powerful for them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, um, we always end our pod- podcast just with a simple question of what are you taking with you from this conversation today? Uh, and I invite all of our listeners to share that out too. What are you taking with you and kind of hashtag that resilience conversations? Uh, for me, um, I, I'm just taking with me um, the f- the fairness committee. I've been kind of really, I've, uh, Elijah shared a documentary with us and I'll link that in the show notes as well, where you can access it. Um, but just really thinking through that idea and, and how to help schools, um, that are ready for something like that. Um, I think that it definitely is part of a long process of, of, being that your school culture is ready for something like that. Um, so I'm, that's the piece that I'm really just wanted to dig in more to and see what that might look like. Um, I think of a, I can think of a school right now <laughs> that I think is ready for something like that. So um, Megan, what are you, what are you holding on to from this conversation? Yeah. So just like you, definitely the fairness committee um, and the core values that you had stated earlier, like respect for the truth, respect for intellect, respect for humanity. Um, I'll get the the full list from you here in a little bit, but um, just that piece of how we can tie literally everything to those core values. Like I can even imagine one of my kiddos who's not doing their cleanup duties and being like, Hey, are you respecting the values of our place here? And using that as a redirection instead of, Hey, you're not doing your chores. You know what I mean? Like just how beautiful that could be. Yeah. Elijah, what about you? What are you taking away from this conversation today? Well, I'm taking a little gratitude for the two of you and the work that you're doing and for your listeners, for sure. And I was thinking just now about what Megan, you and, and you, Carmen, were saying about the younger students, even at the youngest of grades. Uh, I think that's that's one thing I'm taking with me, in part because um, oftentimes people will think the circles for little kids um, well, yeah, it is. And it's for, and it's for people of all generations. Um, we can sit down, we can sit in a circle, we can cross our legs or be in a chair. We can, we can listen to each person in the room. And if the, if the younger students are good at it, let's not let it fade. Let that mode of interaction mature through the school with the children. Mm-hmm. If kids leave fifth grade and they're used to sitting in a circle and like doing the check-in, That can happen in sixth and seventh and eighth grade too, even if it hadn't happened before, because the young people who are coming up know how to do it. So there are certain reforms that we can let mature with the children. And uh, so I'm thinking a bit about that right now and, and grateful for the two of you for bringing it up. 
Well, Elijah, thank you so much for being here with us today. Uh, what is the best way for our listeners to um, to connect with you? Um, a social media or website? What would be the best way for them to connect with you? Yeah, my website is is a nice way to see like some of the work that I've done. And there's an e- there's a you know contact me field um, that you can that comes to my email, or you can email me at at work. Um, E-H-A-W-K-E-S at U-V-E-I dot org. Um, so happy to hear from people in any way, shape or form. I'm also on Twitter for who knows how much longer, um, <laughs> but it's been a great place to network with educators and learn and have my ideas challenged. So I'm at Elijah Hawks on, on Twitter. All right. Well, I'll make sure and drop all of that information in the show notes for everybody. Um, gosh, friends, we just, we thank you for listening today and, um, we hope that you, um, are able to take something from this conversation today and, um, yeah, just spend some time pondering. Uh, we talked about a lot of things today (laughs) and, um, I'm just grateful for, uh, for this time together. So we always end our podcast with, um, with our, our phrase, our saying from our friend, James Moffat. And so friends, uh, we love you and there's nothing you can do about it. Have a great day. (laughs) 